where we've been and then looking forward to where we're going just to kind of get our bearings. And so in some ways, that's what we're, that's what I'm planning on doing uh, this morning. I'm going to pray for us that the, the Spirit of God um, would be active as we open up a section of, of Luke and review where we've been and where we're going. And I would encourage you during this time as well to be praying because uh, God's word is living, it's active. God is going to accomplish something this morning. Uh, this is not just an exercise to check off our list, but God is going to do something in your mind and in your heart uh, that might end up changing the way that you think and feel when you leave here. And so you can be praying that God's word would impact you uh, this morning as well. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we don't have to guess about who you are. We don't have to speculate about what you might be or what you might think or what you think about us or what, Lord, you've, you've chosen to reveal the things that we need for life and ministry. I pray, Lord, that we would receive your word this morning and that you might give us fresh eyes to understand the significance of what's going on. God, I know that the, the makeup of Keystone, a lot of us have grown up in church or in churches and we've heard lessons and stories and sung songs and seen vegetables telling the stories. And Lord, it can seem like it's no big deal when we come across a story in Luke because we've seen it before. Lord, don't let us miss what you want to show us today. I pray that your spirit would be at work to, to convict and to challenge. And that your spirit would be at work in others to comfort and console. And that in all of the different people in here that you would impact us in just the way that you know we need to be impacted. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so where have we been? If you want to, you can open up to the book of Luke. In some ways, the first part of this sermon is just to review where we've been. And so you can really just kind of look at headings. Uh, but does anybody know how many, don't, don't raise your hand, it's not call and response. Uh, but how, how, many, how many sermons do you think we've been in in, in the doctor's cure? 20 is the answer. Um, and we're only up to chapter 7, which if you do some math, we've got uh, 24 total chapters in Luke. Uh, it's going to be a while till we get out of Luke, right? And we're not even covering everything in Luke. We're, we're, we're not just hitting the, the highlights. We're, we're, we're missing some giant sections. And so in a way of looking back, let me tell you how Luke is divided up. The first four chapters of Luke are really the description of Jesus' preparation for ministry. And so when, when we went through chapters one through four, what we were doing was looking at the prophecy concerning Jesus. Uh, we saw the birth of Jesus. We saw the childhood of Jesus in one small little verse, Luke 2.52. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature with man and God. Just that's, that was his uh, childhood. Um, then, then we move up into um, Jesus getting baptized as well as heading off into the wilderness to prepare for ministry. And then in chapter four, and, and really through chapter nine, we have Jesus' ministry in his local town, his, his hometown of Galilee area, him ministering in there. And we saw a variety of different things. Um, the first thing that happened in chapter four is he, he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, uh, reads a prophecy and says to the crowd, today you've heard uh, this prophecy, prophecy fulfilled. 
Um, he ends up picking some disciples in chapter 5, one of whom is, is a fisherman. Um, and we'll find out a little later. Another one's a tax collector. It's in chapter 5 as well uh, that Pastor Keith preached a sermon um, concerning uh, miraculous healing. Do you remember that one? Uh, there were a couple buddies. They bring their paralyzed friend. Uh, there's too much of a crowd around Jesus, so they climb on the roof and they drop him down, um, and, and Jesus heals him. Chapter 6, uh, we end up seeing a couple more uh, of Jesus' uh, stories of, of the, ex- or uh, I'm sorry, the Sabbath laws and the Old Testament laws. Pastor Keith preached a sermon regarding whether or not Jesus had uh, done away with Old Testament laws. Talked about uh, fasting or uh, uh, the Sabbath, uh, as well as what it means to be blessed. Uh, the, the, it's not the uh, Sermon on the Mount, more of the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, he, he says, blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who are hungry, who are reviled. Uh, and, and we examined some of Jesus' teaching about what it means to be blessed. Uh, chapter 7 brought us to um, two different stories that we looked at the last two weeks. Uh, one with a Roman centurion, Jesus heals uh, that Roman centurion's servant, uh, as well as last week, Jesus has dinner at a Pharisee's house and uh, a prostitute ends up um, anoint, washing his feet and then anointing his feet. The thing that struck me and is striking me about the book of Luke is just how unexpected Jesus is. Just how shocking he is. Now, I understand, and you heard it probably in my prayer, that a lot of us are familiar with these stories. And so as Pastor Keith is reading them, it's like, yeah, 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 I've heard that before. Yeah, give me something new. I want to hear something new. That's, that's old news, Brandon. Give me something new. And, and I say that it's surprising and shocking because of how people in the story actually react to Jesus' words and ministry. And so when he opens up that scroll, do you remember what the people said about Jesus? They're like, who's this dude? Is that Joseph's boy? I used to know Joe, played ball with him in high school. Who does he think he is saying that he's the Messiah? I mean, you know he ain't Joe's, right? I mean, they started to, to bash Jesus thinking... This does not make sense. This is some ordinary guy saying what he's saying. Something's not wrong with that. That's shocking. In fact, some people were so offended about what Jesus said later on concerning uh, that the gospel is not just for Jews but for Gentiles that they, they tried to throw him off a cliff. They tried to throw him off a cliff. That's, that's shocking, right? I mean, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in the Bible. I believe it, so Whatever. They tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. Think about it this way. What would I have to say this morning for people in here to want to throw me off a cliff? I mean, it would have to be unbelievably controversial for you to want to kill me for what I just said. People found Jesus' ministry shocking, unexpected. Peter, when he's fishing, and Jesus says, throw the net into the other side. Do you think he was expecting to catch fish? A lifelong fisherman, fishing all day? throws it on the other side, catches so much fish, it almost sinks the boat. Which, by the way, this is not part of it, but you guys know that I fish. Uh, Sometimes fish aren't biting. Uh, And you know what I do? I pray and ask Jesus where to cast my line. You don't believe me. I tell you, look at my Instagram feed. You can see uh, Jesus sometimes works miracles. I... uh, I think I've appreciated most about how Jesus has been shocking to the religious crowd the Pharisee crowd. 
because he's undermining all of their expectations about what anybody should be or say. I already mentioned that he's undermining their ethnic bias when he said that gospel is not just for Jews but Gentiles. He's deconstructing their whole worldview when he says that God blesses the poor, the hungry, the reviled, the excluded. That's not what they expected. They are being shocked by Jesus eroding their religious customs concerning Sabbath. And they get so upset about what Jesus is doing. They find it so shocking. They find it that this is not what they expected from even a so-called Messiah, that they try to kill him. In fact, I think we're going to see later on, um, in fact, well, if, you, if you've been following along in the Explore devotionals, uh, we're going through Luke in there. And so you've seen, there are, there are many more shocking stories to be found in the book of Luke, if you're willing to look at them. If you're willing to open your eyes to the shock, the unexpectedness of Jesus. There's going to be a lot more. I, I really do believe that Jesus would trend very well in today's clickbait fake news culture. I mean, just imagine what it would have been like having Jesus eat with that prostitute. What would the headline of that been? Jesus has dinner with a Pharisee, and you won't guess who joined him. You know, I'm clicking on that because I want to find out what happens. It's shocking. It's surprising. Don't miss the shock and surprise. And what I want to do this morning, besides just push you to be shocked, to find that your expectations might be challenged by Jesus, is to ask, what do we do when we receive information that does not seem to jive with our expectations, when reality doesn't seem to measure up to what we thought it would be like? The question of doubt, what do we do with our doubts? Everybody has an underlying set of beliefs about everything. I'm not just talking religiously. I'm talking about everything. And that leads you to expect certain things to happen. And the question is, okay, when reality smacks you in the face, smacks your expectations in the face, what do we do? Should we change our expectations? Should we change our beliefs? Should we reorder ourselves in a whole Copernican revolution? What do we do? And so you, you, you know that you have doubts. I know that you have doubts. You have to have doubts. There have to have been something in your life where it made you reconsider, do I know what's going on? Like when you got married, maybe. You had a, an idea. Depending upon your parents, you saw their marriage. Depending upon... Um, which romantic comedies you saw, you had a certain set of beliefs concerning what marriage would be like. And after maybe the first six months or year, or maybe just after the honeymoon, how have your expectations of what it would be like, how are they matching up with reality? Sometimes those things that don't jive make you think, have I made a mistake? Have I married the wrong person? What was I thinking? What was I doing? It's not what I expected, so it must be wrong. That's one way to look at it. And you might think about it with your business. You expect that moving out, starting a business, you think it's going to be hard, but you might be blown away by how hard it is. And because it's so much harder than you ever expected it would be, you start to wonder, did I make a mistake? Did I do something wrong? What's going on? And we start doubting. What do we do with these doubts? 
because I think doubt, expectations, beliefs, disappointments, this is part of the human situation, the human condition. And the section of scripture that we're going to look at this morning helps us in some ways to deal with our doubt. So if you would uh, turn to chapter 7 in the book of Luke. This is one of the sections that we skipped over. We're going to hit it this morning. Beginning in chapter 18. The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits. And he restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf are healed, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is preached to the poor. And tell him, God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. Now for our time, I'll break it up into three sections. Pastors only can count to three when it comes to topics. Section one, the nature of doubt. Section two, the response to doubt. Section three, the usefulness of doubt. So if you're following along in the notes that were out in the lobby on the two double doors when you came in, uh, three sections, nature of doubt, response to doubt, usefulness of doubt. Hopefully as we read that section, you can pick up on the clear doubt that's being described here. You can see it in Luke's, or, uh, in Luke's recording of what John said. Are you the Messiah that we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? There's a big question going on. And, and this should be a shocking question because of who it is that's asking it. John the Baptist, if you can remember back, or you just have some church background, you know, John the Baptist, oh my word, how could John the Baptist be saying something like this? I mean, John the Baptist, John the Baptist, he was filled with the Holy Spirit when he was in his mother's womb, and when he actually saw or bumped up against Jesus while he was still in his mom, he leapt for joy. He, he knew Jesus was the Messiah in utero. And then when he started his ministry, he saw Jesus far away and he declared, behold, the Lamb of God who come to, comes to take away the sin of the world. He preached and prepared the way like a prophet to get ready for Jesus. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah, at least at some point. And then something has happened. And so we need to figure out what's the backstory here? What's going on for John? Well, back in chapter 3, we remember that, that John's currently in prison. And the reason that he's sending his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah, is because John can't do it himself. He is caught in prison. He called out the sin of uh, a ruler in that day, Herod. 
said, Herod, you can't divorce your wife and then marry your brother's wife. And, and Herod had some clout, some authority. And so he, uh, in an attempt to honor his wife, arrested John, put him in jail, let him stay there for two years. Uh, and eventually he cuts John's head, head off. John dies in prison. Spoiler alert, if you didn't know. And so John is currently in prison and the only way that he's finding out about Jesus' ministry is because John's disciples are going out, observing everything that Jesus has done, everything that we just reviewed, and then he's reporting back to John, Jesus is doing this, and he's doing this, and he's doing this. And that one little word, so, in the middle of verse 18, helps us to understand the nature of doubt. So... Because of everything that John's disciples had just told John, John had a response to that information, so he sent disciples to ask. In other words, Jesus' ministry was causing John to question whether he really was the Messiah. There was some set of information, some new evidence that was coming down the pike and that new information did not jive with what John expected. John did not expect things to be happening the way that he thought they would. And he's wondering, did I get it wrong? Is Jesus the Messiah? Because if Jesus was the Messiah, he, he, he wouldn't, he'd be doing this, not this. Yeah, it's cool and all that Jesus is, is healing people. It's cool that he's doing some preaching. But when's Jesus going to actually start to lead a rebellion against sinners like Herod? And when's Jesus going to lead a rebellion to overcome the Roman Empire? And, and John's starting to wonder, did I make a, make, make a mistake? Is Jesus the one or have I invested my whole life in a giant mistake? Maybe the reason I'm in jail it's because God is punishing me for preparing the way for a false Messiah. Because if I was really pointing the way to Christ as a Messiah, the Messiah wouldn't let me be in prison here. John's hearing the testimony of Jesus' ministry and he's saying, is that it? Guys, is that it? Is that all he's doing? And so John is being confronted with information that's challenging his expectations. And I want to figure out, how does that work for us? John has his doubts. You have your doubts. And I'm telling you how your doubts may be formed. Because you have certain operating principles, operating beliefs that lead you to make conclusions or expectations about what things will be like in the future. And sometimes certain things will be presented to you that make you reconsider the beliefs that you have. Those questions, those doubts, they can rock you, they can rattle you, depending upon the situation that you're in, depending upon what you expected. Some people expect the worst, and, and so when they're rocked with the news that things weren't really that bad, um, they might reconsider, oh, I really thought that was going to be so scary, and it turns out it was no big deal. Uh, not a big deal. And they, they changed their beliefs. Some people um, expect the best, 
and are destroyed when things don't turn up, cupcakes and rainbows. And, and so then they too have to revisit. Was my expectation wrong? Or was my belief wrong? And, and regardless of whether or not you expect the best or the worst, when certain situations arise, we get challenged. And so my first thing is I, I don't necessarily think that um, we should run away from doubt. Doubt can be a good thing when it helps us to find the truth. Because if something is true, the last thing we want to do is just close our eyes and be blind to it. One of the reasons I love certain movies is because there's a plot twist in it. You're led to believe something all the way along. But in some ways, what you're seeing all along before that plot twist is a lie. You're operating in a false reality. You might think you know what's happening, but you don't know. It's only until this plot twist happens that you are illuminated to think, oh, so that's what it means. I was thinking it was this. And, and so movies like, uh, spoiler alert, Sixth Sense, which I had somebody ruined for. Uh, I actually saw it back in high school. Um, Planet of the Apes, The Empire Strikes Back, try to pick a movie from each different generation. Um, the, these are movies where there is some sort of plot twist that's going to make you reconsider. And that reconsidering, that doubt, that, that happening, that, that, that experience, that's an okay experience. It's a good thing that John expresses his doubt. And so that leads us to the response that Jesus has to his doubt. Take a look at how Jesus responds when John voices his doubt. The first thing that he does is that he provides some evidence for John to believe. Verse 21, uh, at that very time, so after Jesus hears the question, at that very time, Jesus cured many diseases, illnesses, blindness. And then he reads a prophecy out of Isaiah. And one of the reasons that Jesus provides evidence is because our God though he demands faith, does not demand factless faith. God is not calling us to check our brains and our rationality and our logic when we approach the scriptures or approach Christianity. He gives us reason to believe, and Jesus is always giving us and pointing us to reasons to believe he is the one to whom God has said he would send. Do you remember the story of, of Thomas? When, when Thomas doesn't believe that Jesus has risen, what does Jesus do? He's like, here I am. Shows up. Go ahead, Thomas. Touch him. It's real. I'm here. Jesus gives us reason to believe the things that he's calling us to. And so for John, when John expresses doubt, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Should we expect another? Jesus does things that the Messiah would do. He heals, and he actually even quotes the passage from the Old Testament, declares what the anointed one of God would do. And, and so his message to John is essentially this. John, you should believe I am the Messiah because I'm doing the things that the scriptures say the Messiah would do. Somebody who's doing one of these things, healing, and not be the Messiah, John, you should, you should maybe doubt your doubt there. You're doubting whether I'm the, the Messiah. Let me, let me try to cast some doubt on you. Maybe it's just as crazy if 
another person would try to do what I'm doing. You don't see that happening. And Jesus is calling John to question the doubt that's leading him to wonder, is Jesus the Messiah? But he does something else as well. He just doesn't provide evidence. He provides some truth, or I would say he probably reminds John of truth. And he concludes it there in verse 23. And Jesus added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. Maybe this was new information for John, but I doubt that it was. And so what Jesus does is he reassures him of the things that John knows to be true, but in that certain situation, he doesn't feel like it's true. He may have known, maybe, maybe John in Sunday school memorized a verse about God blesses those who uh, don't fall away. And so he's got it in his head, but this distance between his head and his heart, he doesn't feel it. Certainly while he's in prison, not seeing Jesus do all of the things that the Messiah, that he expected the Messiah to do. John doesn't feel like he's being blessed by God. And so Jesus comes and he, he's gentle and he reassures John, John, the truth is, is that God blesses those. It might not feel like you're being blessed, but sometimes just that reassurance, okay, good. I, I was just doubting I needed someone to come. So it was good that John expressed the doubt, but I love that Jesus was so patient with him. I love that Jesus, Jesus knows what John is thinking, what John's feeling. He knows that John's in a really tough spot. He's not blind to the fact that John has reason to doubt. Things are not lining up the way he knows John thought they would. It's shocking, it's surprising. Jesus is doing what people did not expect him to do. The natural result of that is just to have us doubt. But I'll tell you what Jesus doesn't do. When the disciples come to Jesus and ask, Jesus, John wants us to know, are you the Messiah? Jesus doesn't roll his eyes. Like, oh, come on, John. John, we've been over this before. Or and he doesn't tell the disciples, uh, go back and tell John that he better watch himself because he is on some slippery slopes that if he's not careful, he's going to wind up in some major heresies. And sometimes the church can be one of those places where it just does not feel safe to let other people know that we might have questions or that we might have doubts. And, and Jesus gives us an example here of what it can be like to feel free to express our questions and express our doubts. That in our humility and in sincerity, we, we legitimately want to know, this doesn't make sense, this doesn't feel right. Maybe about a particular doctrine or religion, you look at what the scriptures have to say about sexuality. You look at what it says about marriage, about men and women, about hell, about Jesus and the cross, pick your doctrine. There's some things in there that are hard to believe. The gospel is surprising. It's shocking. If you don't have any questions, I would wonder whether or not you really know what's going on. And 
we need to have a safe place where we can ask those questions, have those doubts, share them in a ways that are going to be received and that there will be people who are ready not to condemn, but to patiently and gently provide evidence to cause us to doubt the doubts that we have and to reassure us of the truth. Man, it's just sometimes tough because we don't feel it. It doesn't feel it. To remind us that our feelings don't dictate our reality. I would love for Keystone to be more and more of a place like that. One of the things I said as I was a youth pastor is that I wanted to provide answers, but I also wanted to give a safe place to ask questions. And I did that because there's, there is some benefit in doubt. There's some benefit in doubt. There's some usefulness, I guess is the, the key word there. Doubt can be a useful tool. In fact, Tim Keller has a, has a quote concerning uh, doubt. He reads it like this. It's up on the screen, I think. A faith without some doubts is like a human body with no antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or too indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she fails over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. I'm not a doctor. Uh, I have a little bit of understanding about how antibodies work. Um, so your body is constantly being bombarded with all kinds of infections and disease, bacteria and vi virus. I'm already talking out of my league here. But antibodies are your body's defense system to help fight against these things that come. And, and Keller's saying that your doubts are kind of like antibodies. And if, if you don't have any antibodies in you, you're very susceptible to any onslaught and attack that can come. And so it doesn't take much. It doesn't take some evidence, much evidence, some tragedy, some smart questions from a skeptic that when they assault you and provide another set of beliefs, if you've not wrestled through it, if you don't have those antibodies inside you, it's just easy to crumble. And that's why I made a big push in our youth ministry to not just provide facts, but to provide a reason for why we believe what we believe. I said that we don't want to have parrots in our youth ministry. Parrots are really good uh, at repeating back what someone else says. But they, they can't speak fluently. They don't know anything. That they, hopefully that's not a surprise to you. Uh, parrots aren't intelligent beings. All they do is repeat back. I didn't want a youth ministry full of parrots. Or to put it another way, I didn't want a youth ministry full of thin candy shells. I wanted an M&M with the thin candy shell and all of the chocolatey goodness. And sometimes our youth, and sometimes those youth grow up to be adults, and on the exterior they can look gleaming, shiny, sweet, and perfect, but just one little pinch, if there's no chocolatey goodness on the inside, any pressure, something doesn't happen just the way that they expect. Someone asks a question 
they've never thought about before. And that pressure smashes them. They are destroyed. And what that person needed was the support, the reason to believe that held up the exterior. Because doubts can do good things too. They can cause your faith to grow down deeper. Like for John, John expressed his doubt about Jesus. Jesus, are you the Messiah? That's a hard question. He was wrestling with it. And so he voiced his doubt, and and by voicing his doubt, somebody was able to, Jesus in particular, speak into John's questions and doubts. And in that experience, John's beliefs grew stronger. Now, he probably changed his expectations, probably doesn't expect Jesus to do all the things he thought he was going to do, and and, and so doubt reshaped his expectations, but his, his core beliefs, they grew strong. It's one of the things that is so useful about doubt. It causes us to grow stronger as we see evidence to believe. But the other things that doubt can do, and I think maybe one of the things that Jesus wanted his ministry to do more often was not to confirm old beliefs, but reshape them. I think one of the things that Jesus wanted to do with his ministry that was so unexpected, so shocking, is that he wanted them to have a whole revolution in the way that they viewed life. One of the things that the gospel teaches us is that we are finite human beings, finite mind, fallen hearts. I think it's fair to say we might not see the full picture. We might not know everything. I can guarantee that no one in here, not even Pastor Keith, and you can tell him when he comes back, has every piece of doctrine nailed down perfectly. He doesn't see things totally perfectly. Uh, we're in a part of a, a Bible study together, the, the pastors, and we meet like a, like a care group. Um, and we're, we're going through some texts. We just, we just had a fairly big shift on a, a view of a particular um, set of scriptures. That happens. We, we, we look at it and we, we test it. And sometimes new evidence comes that we're like, you know, I, I believe this, but this information, it's, it's warranted. I, I, need, I need to change what I believe about that. And you have doubts. Some of your doubts should be washed away. You should expe- or express them to people. And, and allow people to speak truth and say, no, 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 your doubt, that's, that's unwarranted. Like, I know that you expected this, but that's, you don't, that was a bad expectation. Don't change your belief. Don't change your direction. Just change what your expectation is. Sometimes doubts will reaffirm your beliefs, but sometimes they should challenge them. And that's why Jesus concludes this section uh, by addressing uh, the Pharisees. Let's pick up in uh, 24, Luke 7, 24. After John's disciples left, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed swayed by every breath of wind? No. Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No. People who wear beautiful clothes and live in luxury are found in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes. 
and he is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way before you. I tell you, of all the people who have ever lived, none is greater than John. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. And when they heard this, all the people, even the tax collectors, agreed God's way was right, for they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's plan for them, for they had refused John's baptism. To what can I compare the people of this generation, Jesus asked? How can I describe them? They're like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends. We played wedding songs, you didn't dance. And we played funeral songs, you didn't weep. For John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating bread or drinking wine. And you say, he's possessed by a demon. And the son of man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks. And you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right. By the, by the lives of those who follow it. Jesus is helping us see two pictures of people. Both groups of people are seeing the same evidence, the same ministry of Jesus, Jesus healing, Jesus preaching. And some people, when they see that evidence, they receive it. They accept it as truth. Whatever doubts, whatever uh, beliefs that needed shifted, they shift to receive this news. And then there's another set of people who see the same evidence. And instead of asking hard questions, instead of considering that they may be wrong, they have a closed-minded attitude. They stick their head in the sand and they refuse to accept, refuse to embrace what, in all honesty, is clear before them. And it leads them to conclude contradictions. Did you pick up on the contradiction? Jesus says, these people, they are so lost, their conclusions, their worldview is causing them blatant contradiction. John, on one hand, he, he doesn't eat and he doesn't, or he doesn't feast and he doesn't drink wine and they call him a demon. The son of man, Jesus comes and Jesus does feast and he does drink and they say, ah, he's a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of sinners. So which is it? it in this case, it really is a damned if you do, damned if you don't. And, and God or Jesus is calling out their hypocrisy. He's calling out their inconsistencies. And he says, if you want to know what's right, if you want to know what's wise, wisdom is shown to be right by those who live it. There are certain times where your doubts should be confirmed. There are certain beliefs that you hold that are wrong. You got it wrong. And there might be subtle questions. You might see things differently. 
or new evidence might come. And that's why I'm encouraging us to read the Gospel of Luke with fresh eyes. I want us to be shocked. I want us to be surprised. I want the, there, there to be doubts and questions about what we thought we knew to, to come and confront us because certain doctrines, certain beliefs, certain elements need to be shifted a bit. That's what it means to grow in holiness. And so my encouragement for us is a couplefold. One, Keystone really needs to be a safe place for you to ask the questions that you have. I know you have them. If you picked up a set of notes on your way in, the back half of that, there's uh, some follow-up questions for you to work through, maybe in a small group, maybe just by yourself. But one of the questions on there is, where are you experiencing doubt? You've got to express it. If it not, it's going to fester within you. You've got to have someone be able to speak truth into you. Your worldview can become so myopic, so you can have tunnel vision, and all you end up seeing is confirmation of what you want to see. And it's not until you open up your doubts to have somebody else speak truth, evidence, reminders, that your beliefs can be deepened. But I would also encourage you to be open to the fact that God might be trying to shape you in a different way and have you reconstruct some of your beliefs. That we would, in humility, realize we might not have full clarity when it comes to everything, and we'd be open to hearing, which is probably really helpful for you parents. Parents, don't freak out if your kid asks you a question. Don't immediately assume that if they have a question or a doubt about Christianity, that they're immediately going to run off into drugs, rock and roll, and crime. There's, there's no reason. If they're being honest with their doubts, hallelujah. Because what they're doing is they're inviting you to provide evidence, inviting you to provide truth. Remind them of what's true, real. And you can ask them, test them. Take their doubt, help them understand what this doubt requires, and then apply the same doubt that you have to your Christian belief to this belief. And if that sounds intimidating, that might just mean you need to bulk up on why you believe what you believe. Which is why I'm excited. We're, we're, we're hosting an uh, apologetics uh, speaker in the fall and who will come to give us reason for what we believe. I believe God wants to continue to shape us at Keystone through the reading and preaching of his word. And one of the ways that we can do that is by being open to our doubts and asking our questions and then confronting them with what's true. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that your word would be unleashed on us. Lord, you are the lion of Judah. You are ferocious. Your word is a sword I pray, Lord, that it would do the work to overcome false beliefs and faulty expectations that we have so that we might rest in truth. I pray, Lord, that our doubts and our questions based on the circumstances and feelings that we have would cause those of us who are believers to have our faith grow deep that you would bring people into our lives who would be able to speak truth and give evidence in an understanding, humble way 
that would help us to doubt our doubts. And Lord, I also pray that you would allow the gospel to shape us. That where we are in uh, air, when we are wandering, that you would confront us with evidence that would challenge what we believe. Help us, Lord, see Christ in his unique and shocking and unexpected way so that the gospel might both save us and shape us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.